Now, now shall, shall I tell, tell of things, things that change? New being, new being out of old. Since, Since you, you, O gods, o gods, o gods created, mutable created mutable arts, created arts, mutable arts and gifts. Give me the voice. The voice. Give me the voice. The voice to tell the shifting, the shifting, the shifting story of the world. Fate. It seems the world is divided into two different sorts of people. People who believe that everything is predestined, that what happens, happens for a reason, whether good or ill. And people who believe the world, and by extension their lives, lack any rudder or plan beyond what they themselves seek to make happen. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we succeed, but some people believe that there are no invisible threads, no pattern, no grand tapestry designed by an unseen hand. And there are others who want to believe, either in fate or in their own freedom, but they can't shake the feeling that sometimes they might be wrong. Maybe they crave the structure of fate, the liberation from responsibility, and yet they still grasp at the strings to tug and pull in order to get that new job, to keep their lover from leaving them, to avoid some fearful outcome or achieve some magnificent goal they long for. They believe in fate, but they want what they want, too. And maybe others live their lives in complete control. What happens, whatever happens, is all on them. Every success, they worked hard for it. Every summit reached, it was by their own steam. And every failure? Well, some just can't bring themselves to take ownership. It was something out of their control. The market crashed. The safety wasn't on. Someone forgot to lock the door. I'm genetically inclined to addiction. The professor had it in for me. I don't know where I fall on the continuum of fate and responsibility. I know that I tend to downplay any achievements or successes, nodding to good fortune or a lucky twist of fate rather than any effort or virtue on my part. And I often see every failure, however large or small, every misfortune, as avoidable. Something I could have and should have prevented. Something that was the natural outcome of a mistake I made, an oversight, an error, or just an outright fuck-up on my part. I take no credit and all of the blame. Yeah, I've got issues. I wasn't always this way. I wasn't always so humble or damaged. Well, I've always been damaged, but when I was younger, I wasn't humble. The opposite was true. I believed every good thing in my life was a gift from God, and every bad thing was the work of the devil attacking me, like Job. Like a lot of people, I believed that God had favored me, and anything bad that happened was just an attack. But 
underneath it all? Even though I often made excuses for my own near-constant and inevitable fuck-ups, deep down I knew, even then, that I was the only one to blame. Try though I might to weasel out of any deserved punishment, I knew I deserved it. And as I got older, I saw more clearly how ridiculously lucky I really was, and that every blessing in my life wasn't just undeserved, it wasn't some kind of blessing bestowed on me because I was one of the faithful or one of the elect. I was just lucky. Lots of other people were too, some way more than I. But many, most of them really, weren't lucky. Many aren't lucky at all. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. If anything, luck seems to ebb and flow like the tide. You have good days and bad ones, lean years and fat, an outpouring of good fortune on you, and then, in a flash, it all withdraws like the waves receding from the shore, leaving behind nothing but dry and desolate sand. You really couldn't find a much more entitled person than me at the age of 19 or 20 or 21. White, male, middle class, lucky. Also self-involved, creative, artistic, romantic, mildly talented, deeply self-indulgent. None of that's much of a surprise, I know, especially if you've been listening to this show for a while. It also might not be that much of a surprise to know that back in those days, the favorite myth of that entitled, self-involved kid was the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. As stories go, it's a pretty good one. Orpheus was the son of Calliope, the muse of eloquence and epic poetry. Some say his father was Ocagris, a Thracian king who was the son of the titan Atlas. Others say that his father was Apollo, the god. Either way, that's not too bad a way to start off your life. Being the child of an Olympian or a Titan is, at the very least, a bit of a leg up over most everyone else on the planet. And, son of his mother, Orpheus was gifted beyond all measure. It's said that Apollo, seeing a spark in the boy, gave Orpheus a golden lyre to play. And then they sent the kid off to Juilliard. Orpheus became the greatest musician in all the land. His renown spread, and his name was known in every kingdom on earth. His music, it is said, was more than music. He transcended the art of music and touched the skills of the gods themselves. He could sing the birds from the trees. He could calm the minds of animals and warriors, soothe the hearts of maidens, civilize the savages. He could make the dead stone sing. And he could, with his golden lyre, play up the dawn each day. And though all others toiled for long years to learn technique and perfect their craft, Orpheus effortlessly outshone them all. 
I've heard him described on more than one occasion as the first rock star. I don't know how accurate that description is, but we know he was significant. Some say he was mortal, others divine. He was called the father of music, a pretty bold title when your father is Apollo. They say that agriculture, medicine, and writing were all gifts he introduced to the world. But honestly, to my eyes, that just seems to be the typical tendency we have to build up our gods and heroes, ascribing every good thing to their provenance and influence after the fact. Some say he was a magician. Certainly, if the stories of his musical prowess are to be believed, he was a true practitioner of the capital A, art. Most ancient scholars seem to bestow some degree of historicity upon him. That is, they saw him as a real figure, and not just a story or a myth. The main evidence for this seems to be the following that grew up around him. His cult was widespread, and he had many devotees. Some say his worship was an offshoot of the popular cult of Dionysus, which lends some credence to the idea that Ocagris, and not Apollo, was his father, in that Ocagris was believed to be a minor wine deity, in addition to being the king of Thrace. But regardless of how it all began, the teachings of Orpheus endured down through the centuries, his mysticism proving to be a deep influence on later philosophers like Plato and Pythagoras. But he was more than a musician, much more. Early in life, he voyaged with the Argonauts and proved himself time and time again as a valuable member of that crew of heroes. His musical magic got them out of more than a few close calls on the journey, most notably when he drowned out the songs of the sirens with his lyre. When the voyage was done and he returned to Thrace, his glory and reputation had grown even broader, his name carrying further than ever before, though who knows how much that would have mattered to a naiad named Eurydice. What would a humble, rustic water nymph care for the reputation and fame of the broad world beyond her little stream? We don't know how they met, or what their courtship was like. Maybe after his long journey surrounded by soldiers and sailors, Orpheus went into the countryside, seeking the comfort and peace of nature and solitude. See him there walking through the hills and fields, threading his way through the trees. But is he soaking up the beauty of nature? Or is he playing his lyre as he goes along, letting his music wash over nature and transform it, instead of letting it transform him? Maybe he stopped for a while by a stream and sat and played accompanying the music of the waters, augmenting it with his own. And maybe somewhere there in the cool shallows, someone felt that music, felt those fingertips playing over her passions as the music played over the surface of the water, and maybe, curious, 
She rose to see who was stirring the song of the stream with one of his own. And as he played, maybe a voice rose from the waters to greet him. However it played out, Orpheus and Eurydice were soon betrothed and sooner again married. And on their wedding day, the great god Hymen, his saffron mantle spread all about him like a glowing wave, leapt every boundary in the boundless heavens, summoned by the song of Orpheus to present himself at the wedding. But though he was there, though he lifted high his torch, the words of blessing did not come. Neither good omens or fortune bestowed on the happy couple, for the god stammered and fumbled, even as his torch stuttered and spluttered and his eyes filled with tears, though whether it was the stinging smoke or the ill omens he delivered, no one knew. Marriage is one of those times when it can feel like you are very close to the edge of fate, the fringed, threadbare margins of what we know and what we hope for. Like the birth of a child or the death of a loved one, marriage is much anticipated, much feared, and when the day comes, we can't shake the feeling that there's more than just family and friends there in the room with us. It takes us up to that boundary line, marriage does, like birth and death. It puts us in the place where worlds overlap, where things can cross over. In the ancient world, the superstitions and customs and rituals associated with marriage were just as ornate and fraught with emotion as they are today, maybe even more so, really. Because we don't always observe the rituals even though we go through them. We don't see the omens, let alone give them any weight or acknowledgement we nod to tradition just to keep grandma happy and then cut the cake. But in the ancient world, an ill omen on your wedding day was impossible to ignore. You know what's coming. The god Hymen is there to bless the wedding of Orpheus and Eurydice. But no blessings come. For Hymen's torch to sputter and falter, that was a serious omen of disaster. It cast a flickering light on the patterns that fate had woven for Orpheus and Eurydice's future together. And in those times, fate is unswayable. You might ignore it, but you can never escape it. The details of Eurydice's death are unclear. But what we do know is that death came for her on her wedding day. Some say she was dancing when a snake struck at her heel, flooding her veins with poison as she fell. Others say she was walking in the forest. Some say she was walking with her sisters, laughing even as her path led her to where the serpent waited. But then there are others, darker stories that tell of a satyr named Aristeus who came upon her as she was walking alone in the woods. Why was she alone 
on her wedding day. Maybe she was tired of the merriment and the noise of the day, the attention of the guests, and the general overwhelming quality of it all. Maybe she just wanted a moment of quiet, alone there in the woods where she felt safest, where her stream ran, where she'd lived her entire life. Maybe she just wanted to be alone. But she wasn't. She wasn't alone. Aristeus was there. Now, some say he followed her there. Some say he led her. Others say he merely happened upon her. Regardless of how it happened, the lusts of the satyr are legendary, and when he saw her there in the woods, he pounced. And she ran. And there, on the path, the snake was waiting. Some say Eurydice died before Orpheus could reach her, that he clutched her lifeless body in his arms and called her name, but she was too far away to hear him anymore. Others say that the fates were kind, or perhaps doubly cruel, that he found her there in time for one last kiss, heard her final sigh, her breath bitter with venom. But what we do know is that while she was walking or dancing, whether she was pursued by lust or celebrating with her sisters, when the snake struck while she lay dying, her husband was off playing his lyre, performing for his wedding guests. He wasn't with his bride. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe things wouldn't have turned out any differently if he had been with her. Maybe her fate was so woven tightly that there was no slack to save her. Maybe. Maybe these were questions that Orpheus asked himself as he wept over his dead love, her bridal gown, now her shroud. Maybe he cursed the gods. Maybe he cursed the fates. Maybe. Who could fault him for that? But we aren't told that he cursed himself. And afterwards, or as Ovid put it, once Orpheus had mourned sufficiently, he decided to try the underworld. Who knows what was going through his head? He was young the son of a god, a hero of the Argos. He had been in love, and he had lost that love to death too soon. He was in mourning. He might have been desperate. He might have felt cheated. Maybe he thought he could pull some strings, cash in a few Olympian favors. What's the point of being the son of Apollo if you can't get special treatment? Maybe, like a C-list local celebrity demanding a table at Applebee's, he was going to try the don't-you-know-who-I-am? Entitled. A spoiled child. Unwilling to accept fate. But the trouble is, fate doesn't care who you are. They don't care how famous you are. They don't care whose son you are. The fates the Morai, they're older than the gods. 
In fact, there's no one on earth or below it or above who does not answer to them. So if Orpheus went to the underworld to unravel the fate of his poor doomed wife, he was still being pulled along by the threads that the fates had spun for him, whether he accepted it or not. Even as he went to defy them, they had hold of him. Many writers spend a great deal of time detailing Orpheus's journey into the underworld. They tell of the payment of a song for the boatman, soothing the guardian Cerberus with a lullaby, the passage through the pale and fallow fields of the dead, crowds of twittering ghosts fluttering around him like bats, like moths to a candle, drawn to the light of his life and his undimmed vitality. Or maybe they were just drawn by the song he played as he made his way before the thrones of Hades and Persephone. I don't know what you think the kingdom of Hades looks like. I could tell you, based on what I've seen myself firsthand in my dreams, but I won't impose that on you here. Your version is probably best for you. So, picture a throne room, whatever that might be in your mind, and see the king and queen seated there side by side, patiently, indulgently receiving their guest more out of courtesy than obligation. They know who he is, of course, and he makes it clear why he's come. You gods below, before whom we mortals must all appear, permit me to speak and I will do so plainly, without flattery, without lies. I have not come to your kingdom to see the sights or to perform great feats. I am here because she is here, my wife. One false step brought her here. The sharp fangs of a serpent in her heel cut her loose from the threads of her life, cut her loose from me on our wedding day. I tried to endure the sorrow tried to get on with my life, but love would not leave me alone. I do not know if that God has power here below, but I have heard the stories of your own courtship, that rape long ago, which brought the two of you together as well. So maybe you know this God too, love. If you do, as I do, then I do beg you, by these fearful places below, by the whirling, unstoppable chaos, I beg you, in this silent realm, weave once more the threads of fate that bind my wife to me. The Song of Orpheus, Before the Thrones of Hades and Persephone, is an amazing piece. It's amazing in its arrogance, in its tone-deaf hubris. Orpheus tries to flatter gods who are more or less immune to flattery. And if we're being honest, he manages to insult them at the same time he tries to flatter them. He even throws a little shade, pun intended, on their kingdom as well. 
And all of this before he really hits his stride, cataloging all his woes and whining about lost love to the two gods who, more than any others perhaps, know all about the cruel decrees of fate that lovers have to endure. And so, from flattery to insults to flattery again, Orpheus tries to untangle his fate with a romantic plea. And just in case that won't close the deal, he finishes up with a threat. I ask for her life as a favor, but if the fate should deny me the gift I am seeking, on behalf of my wife, be sure that I will remain here, and you may take pleasure then in a double destruction. That last bit there, you may take pleasure in double destruction, has all the makings of a passive-aggressive suicide note. He might as well be talking about the destruction of the underworld as much as himself. Nice underworld you've got here. I might stick around and see the sights, play a few concerts. Be a shame if anything happened to it. No matter how entitled or egotistical his motivations truly are, the hubris of Orpheus is not entirely unfounded. He is the greatest musician of his age, and even in this dismal land, his music can soften the hardest of hearts. Because then, something that had never happened before, happened. The kindly ones, the furies, they shed tears as his song overcame them utterly. And the bride of Hades, Great Persephone, neither was she deaf to his prayers, and even her husband, the lord of that place, would not deny the boy. For all intents and purposes, Orpheus's song throws the realm of Hades into, if not chaos, then at least unproductivity. Everything comes to a halt. There's no denying that Hades takes his responsibilities very seriously. And perhaps more than any other god, he respects fate and contents himself with the role that he has been given to play. We've discussed this before, but just to review, as the oldest son of the titan Kronos, Hades deserved to be the lord of the gods in Olympus. But that's not how things played out. Somehow, whether by trickery or fate, probably both, he was denied his birthright. And, Promise to the hand of Korah, the daughter of Demeter, as consolation, that too was taken from him, over and over again, actually. He loses his wife every year, loses her when the seasons change. But complaints? Hades makes none. Unlike Orpheus. It takes a special kind of arrogance to go before a god like Hades and confidently demand special treatment. To look into the eyes of a god who has been completely screwed over by fate and declare that your life isn't fair? Well, good luck, kid. But Orpheus was good. Even though his rhetoric is lacking, his music must have been persuasive. While he might not have been good enough to sway the unswayable heart of Hades, some authors differ on how that played out, he did manage to touch the only heart that could sway the lord of the underworld. Persephone's. 
Now, Ovid says Hades was moved by Orpheus' song as well, but most others, including Virgil, for instance, say that it was Persephone who made the case to her husband on Orpheus' behalf. She pleads with her husband, and he, who can deny her nothing, relents. It's worth noting that Ovid doesn't explicitly say that Persephone pleads with Hades, just that she was unable to reject Orpheus's prayer, and nor could he who rules the underworld deny him. And so, called up from her place among the newly dead, limping and awkward, her wounds still fresh as her wedding day, Eurydice moved into view at the front of the host of the gathered dead, And so, in mercy, Eurydice is released, and Orpheus is free to take her back out of the underworld. She is to be restored to him on one condition, that he make the journey alone, with her following behind. They may not speak, they may not touch, he may not gaze upon her, not until they are once again on the surface and outside of Hades' realm. Why? Why this condition for her release? It's unclear to me where this comes from. In Virgil, it's suggested that this is a rule set by Hades specifically for Orpheus. You wanted special treatment? You got it, kid. But Ovid is less clear. There are conditions, but it does not specifically say it was Hades who imposed them. I've done my research to try and find out if this was a broader rule about the underworld. Something like not being allowed to eat or drink. Something in the folklore that everyone was expected to abide by, but I wasn't able to turn up anything. Even trying to theorize if there was a physical or metaphysical law underlying the conditions that were set, I couldn't quite puzzle it out. My question came down to this. Was there an overarching superstition or tradition in place in mythology, something that spoke about what had to happen when a dead soul returned to life? On a physical level, It's my understanding that Eurydice would have been cremated and not buried, so there was no physical body for her shade to return to. Maybe the long, slow walk back up was a process by which the incorporeal became physical once more. Maybe there was literally some kind of atomic reassembly at work, step by step. And to gaze upon this process and action, in which Eurydice would be both alive and dead at the same time, that gaze would disrupt the quantum field in some kind of strange mashup of the Heisenberg principle and Schrodinger's cat, because, you know, quantum something, something, something. When I catch myself going off on these Baroque intellectual explorations, I tend to come back to the basics. The simplest answer is usually the most likely one. There's no larger superstition or principle at work. The condition was imposed by Hades on Orpheus. It was, at face value, nothing more than a test 
But what exactly was being tested? Surely not the scope and depth of Orpheus's love. He's come to the underworld for love, not an ordeal that most people are willing to endure. His love is undeniable. Even the king and queen of the dead are moved by it. Even the furies weep. And why wouldn't they? Haven't Hades and Persephone also endured great trial and sacrifice to be together? Don't they live their life together in the shadow of the decree of fate, an impending, inevitable separation always heavy on their hearts? If anyone was going to be sympathetic, it's Persephone and Hades. But are they? Were they sympathetic to this young, entitled kid showing up and demanding special treatment? In virtually every depiction of the scene where Orpheus makes his case before the thrones, Orpheus is cast as the romantic hero. Persephone is the soft-hearted queen moved by his plight. And Hades is the cruel ruler who grants the boy's request only at the urging of his wife, throwing in a little sadistic twist into the bargain. If you've listened to some of the earlier episodes of this show, then you won't be surprised to know that I take issue with this depiction of Hades. I think, based on fairly objective interpretation and analysis of the original myths, that the Lord of the Underworld has gotten a bad rap, but that's just me. And yet, still, Hades imposes this condition on Eurydice's return. As I said, it's a curious point. If he isn't testing Orpheus's love or resolve, neither of which seem to be in question, is he perhaps testing Orpheus's faith in the gods, his faith in Hades? Seems unlikely. Orpheus has already shown respect for the rulers of the underworld by pleading his case to them directly, albeit poorly. He didn't sneak into the underworld and try to steal his bride away. He came, as would be expected, the son of one of the gods to come, showing deference and acknowledging their sovereignty. So, why is he being tested? What is being tested? Ovid provides us with an answer. Orpheus afraid that she would fail him, turned to look. There it is. That element is missing from every depiction I've ever seen or read. The long walk is a test of faith for Orpheus, but not his faith in Hades. It's a test of the faith he has in his wife. And he fails. Which was, of course, his fate all along. Afraid that she would fail him, but he failed her. And if anyone could know that this was going to happen, it would be Hades. On the one hand, Hades endures his fate without complaint, be it the loss of his birthright, his dismal station ruling the sunless lands, or the seasonal cycle of loss and loneliness he suffers again and again. On the other hand, everyone dies sooner or later. Why give special treatment? Why try to subvert the dictates of fate? It never ends well. 
If anyone has confidence and fate, it's Hades. Whatever he decides, whatever Orpheus wants, it doesn't matter. Things will play out ultimately the way the fates have decreed. The omens were there, and the sputtering torch of Hymen. You can try to outrun sorrow, but your heel will find the serpent sooner or later. You can try to bargain with death, negotiate a special dispensation based on your birthright or the strength of your love, but you will always falter and fail yourself in the end, just like Orpheus. Afraid that she would fail him. What's interesting is we don't hear much from Eurydice on the matter. What did she think? What did she say? Let's go to Virgil. Orpheus, she cried, what madness has destroyed my wretched self and you? See, the cruel fates recall me, and sleep hides my swimming eyes. Farewell now, I am taken, wrapped round by vast night, stretching out to you, alas, hands no longer yours. She spoke and suddenly fled, far from his eyes like smoke vanishing in thin air, and never saw him more, though he grasped in vain at shadows. Now, in contrast to Virgil, Ovid gives her nothing but a single word, farewell, and then she's gone. See her now, the one who feels the touch of death a second time now. She does not blame him for what was his fault, but predictability. Farewell was her only cry, her last word before she returned to her place among the whispering dead. For what was his fault, but predictability? Oh, I think she could find fault with him on a few things. Apart from Virgil and Ovid, Eurydice is mostly silent. Fortunately, more contemporary writers find and free her voice. For instance, the poet Peter Davison in his poem Eurydice in Darkness. Here, Far underground, I can hear the trees still moving overhead where he, the poet, mourns. Let him stir stumps if he chooses. Soon enough, he'll sing his courage up to penetrate the earth, clinging to that lyre as though the world depended on it, and unstring one after the other of my familiars. The three-headed lapdog, the boatman at the river, the gaggle of furies, my undertaker himself. With instrument still twangling from the effort, his fingers will be raw, but I'll be waiting, dressed to kill and ready with a plan he'll find acceptable. He'll turn his back. It's every flabby muscle I have pinched a thousand times and clump along the tunnel, dead certain I shall follow him to sunlight. And so I shall murmuring at times, whining that he walks too fast, complaining that he might at least give me a look after such absence, brushing my breasts against him. Not till the sunlight seeps in overhead will I tax him, 
A man and not a poet would have kept the country free of snakes and left off that everlasting mooning and fiddling. He could have prevented all this. And he might please give me a hand here. I'll fall with these sandals. That's it. He turns from the light, his face engorged with pity and self-pity. He thrusts out his hand, and I shall dance away, my laughter dancing before me every mile of the way back home. That's a unique take on the character of Eurydice, and it begs the question, who's to say she wanted to come back at all? And Orpheus was afraid that she would fail him. She didn't, of course. He failed her, and not just there on the threshold of Hades' kingdom, Orpheus failed her long before, on a few occasions. How did he put it? Back in the throne room, if the fates deny me the gift I am seeking, be sure that I will remain here, and you may take pleasure then in a double destruction. So when Eurydice was lost... Did Orpheus head right back to the underworld to make good on his oath? Well, to his credit, he tried. For seven days he sat by the river's banks, unkempt, unshaven, and unfed, with naught but care and sorrow for his nourishment, complaining that the gods below were cruel. Oh, the gods were cruel. I, I can't even with this kid. I mean... What was stopping him from throwing himself off the cliffs into the sea, or heading home, drawing a bath, and opening his wrists in the dignified classical vein, pun intended? Didn't he want to rejoin his wife below? Didn't he say he would? What was stopping him? His pride. The same thing that led him to lose his wife on not one but two occasions. The same pride that led him to doubt her and turn back. The same pride that held him back from fulfilling his vow. It's almost as if the fates decreed it. For what it's worth, Plato called Orpheus a coward. I don't mean to be harsh. As I said, when I was younger, this was my favorite myth. But I was younger. As I've gotten older and thankfully outgrown the self-indulgent romantic narcissism of my younger days, well, the story doesn't strike me quite the same way anymore. You might have figured that out by now. As I was preparing this episode, I was struck yet again by some interesting connections with one of the other myths we discussed in an earlier episode. In addition to the odd echoes and parallels with the cycle of Persephone and Hades' relationship, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice has some interesting connections with Sakes and Alcyon as well. But it's an odd set of parallels, inverted. In the story of Sakes and Alcyon, it's the husband who dies, and instead of the mourning lover traveling to the underworld, the underworld comes to the wife to break the news. In stark contrast to Orpheus, Alcyon accepts her fate, embraces it even. She leaps into the arms of death so that she might be reunited with her lost love once more, and she is rewarded by the gods for it. She finds the reunion she seeks thanks to the kindness of Hera, 
who was, as you might recall, once a goddess of the underworld on parallel with Persephone. But not poor Orpheus. His pride leads him to the underworld to bargain and threaten. He insults the gods. He breaks his oath. He wallows in his sorrow. He sits, his heart turning to stone, and bereft, he flees completely from the love of women. It's unclear why he did this, whether because he was disappointed in women in general or because he felt a lingering obligation to Eurydice. Who can say? The only way to know is to ask the question, did he live his days out in sorrow and loneliness, celibate and forever pining over his lost wife? Not exactly. But we'll get to that in our next episode. And that's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. Take care of each other, and may your gods bless you.
Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. Now you know who to blame. The contents of this show are copyright 2016, T.M. Camp, and may not be copied, transcribed, transmitted, or otherwise reproduced without his express written permission. Failure to comply is a violation of international copyright law, and violators will be severely punished over the long years as they watch one by one each of their loved ones slowly back step by step into the rising sea until they are left alone on an empty shore. Visit us online at findyourgods.com and join in the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com slash findyourgods. You can also bother us on Twitter at Find Your Gods, and we're even on Instagram, Tumblr, and Pinterest because isn't everyone?